original. I'm Roger Berkowitz. I'm Larry Gulko, and this is Name Brands, the podcast about the story behind your favorite brands. Visiting us today is a gentleman who has literally changed the landscape in the home furnishings business. His name is Naraj Shah. He, along with a high school and later college friend, Steve Conine, had an idea back in 2002, and that was to build a website selling stereo racks and stands. They later expanded that to over 250 standalone sites before eventually wrapping most everything under one website, today known as Wayfair, selling everything from blankets to bird feeders. In 2014, the company went public and today employs over 7,500 people operating in four countries with revenue in 2017 of $4.7 billion. We sit here in awe over your rapid growth and market dominance, uh, Naraj. Welcome. Roger, thanks for having me here. Naraj, Wayfair was not the first company you launched. You either founded or co-founded several others. Uh, You were included in Forbes magazine, 40 Under 40, and were the winner of the Ernest & Young's prestigious National Entrepreneur of the Year Award. So looking at this, it's pretty easy to conclude that you must have been, uh, you know, some kind of business wonderkins, and you've gone to a business school, whether it was Babson, HBS, Wharton, Stanford, but no. You have a BS in mechanical engineering from Cornell. Now, you're obviously smart, but, you know, kind of explain to us where those entrepreneurial roots came from. Well, sure, Roger. So, so Wayfair, so Steve Conine, who's a college friend of mine and I, um, have ended up starting three companies together. And uh, we were both engineering students at Cornell. And but both of us had different entrepreneurial sort of roots in our in our upbringing. So I, I was my, my grandfather was an entrepreneur. My parents were immigrants to the United States, which I think takes a certain type of entrepreneurial spirit. Um, I was the kid with like the baseball trading card business and the lawn mowing business and, you know, that type of thing. Uh, Steve's mom started a outdoor furniture, garden furniture store in New Jersey. Um, so there's a lot of different sort of entrepreneurial uh, roots. And then at Cornell, uh, the engineering curriculum is sort of fairly demanding, but there's room for electives. And actually what started us on our very first business was our, a course, our last semester at Cornell, which was actually an entrepreneurial course, a course in entrepreneurship at Cornell. You know, it, it, it's, it's just you know, interesting because I've noticed over time a lot of entrepreneurial companies uh, that I've read about were started by friends and really started by friends in the 18 to 24 year age bracket. Now, some of these companies were Israeli, um, where, you know, these kids come right out of high school and they, they serve time in the military together. What is it about that dynamic at that age that kind of bonds people? Well, I think the nice thing about that age is, you know, the, being an entrepreneur, generally, you know, when you pursue something, you, you're generally not making a good salary day one, right? Uh, but the younger you are, the less it costs you to live, the more financial flexibility you have. You're not necessarily supporting, you know, today I'm married, we have two children, it'd be a much bigger risk to leave a good paying job and, and start something from scratch. But at that point in time, you know, as long as you can provide for yourself on very basic means, you can you can do it, right? And so I think if you think about folks, whether they start a, uh, you know, a rock band or you think about whether you start a business, at that age, you have a lot more flexibility. And I think that is a, that's a piece of it. 
Raj, going back in time, it's like interesting. I was having dinner with some friends the other night, and I told them you were going to be a guest today. And all of them said, wow, what an overnight success. I said, overnight success? He's been grinding away for 16 years. But because, you know, before it was CSN, now it's Wayfair. I'm curious to know, what was a turning point then with you and your, your roommate, whatever, way back when, to want to either start a technology company or you kind of like really in tune to say, we want to create a consumer packaged goods company with these stereo racks and stands. What, what was it that permeated to start the first venture? So we graduated from Cornell in 1995. 1995 was more or less the beginning of the commercial internet. And so one of the things we got exposed to during our last semester of college was, was the internet, the early, early days of, you know, sort of the very basic UPS website, but you could actually track your pack and those types of very early web systems. And so the business plan we wrote about in that entrepreneurship course I mentioned in the first business we started was basically a software development firm. We, we were a consultancy. We helped companies build internet systems. Okay. And so that started what's now been, you know, a 20 plus year sort of evolution of everything we've done has been in and around the internet. And so when we started this business, we, we didn't want to be in a consulting professional services business, but we wanted to do something that took advantage of what we knew, which was internet technologies. And we were trying to figure out a good idea at the time. This was 2002. And, you know, one of the things that we came across was that e-commerce was actually growing despite sort of uh, what you would read in the press that perhaps e-commerce was struggling because of the dot-com crash. Right. And, but, but our view was you had to pick categories that were underserved. And that led us into our first category, which you mentioned, you know, TV stands, speaker stands, entertainment furniture, um, which then led us to other categories of furniture and then decor. And these were just not categories. You know, they really were not national retailers that focused on these categories. Right. And so that created the opportunity. And you started with, as CSN, and these were initials from you and your partner. And then years later, Wayfair became kind of the umbrella of all the portfolios of the 250 plus different websites you had. How did you create the name Wayfair? Yeah, so we were about 10 years old, um, and we had grown to about $500 million in sales, um, but we didn't have a brand, a consumer brand. And so we had tried for a couple years to really drive the repeat business, and we had grown it fairly dramatically, but we had also hit in our mind what was a ceiling. And in our view, to really get to where we wanted to go, we needed a brand. And so rather than having all these different websites where you might buy from us and be very happy, but you wouldn't remember who we were, you wouldn't know we had all these other product categories, we decided we needed to be you know, one store where you understood everything we had you would have reason to come back and you would have reason to remember us. So that's why we then started the work to launch the brand. We launched Wayfair in 2011. To come up with the name, we needed some help. We actually ended up using a brand consulting firm that's actually based just outside of Boston to help us because, you know, we had all this criteria, you know, short, spellable. We needed to get the domain names. We needed to get the trademarks. There was a long list. And um, even by that point, a lot of the domain names and, and things were taken. So you needed to really make up a word. You couldn't really use like an English word. And so in this case, it's two English words put together, but not, that are not necessarily uh, commonly put together. So as one name, it was fairly novel. And we thought that we could build it up into being memorable and um, hearkening the image of what we wanted. And, and so that's, cool. that's how we picked it. So, so you went for a marketplace that, in your opinion, was was underserved, and you really have done remarkably well with it. Where do you see the future, the online future of your business going? I mean, you've gotten so successful. Do you automatically spawn competition? 
that is going to try to emulate you or is not if you've gone so far so fast that the cost of entry now separates you so i would say you know we you always have competition but in our early days we would have had you know dozens and dozens and dozens of competitors and over time as we've grown and as we went from you know perhaps our competitors and us had more or less the same selection and more or less the same kind of capabilities on logistics and and we fast forward to today where we have, you know, 7 million square feet of warehouse space and we have our own wow. transportation and we have over a thousand people building software and we have all these advantages. What's happened is the competitive field has narrowed mm-hmm. because all of those things translate into customer benefits. So our whole focus is about the customer. How can we make the customer experience better? What can we do better for the customer? And to compete today, you know, you'd need to be up against competitors who similarly have some sort of real offering for the customer. And it gets harder as each company mm-hmm. gets a little bigger, adds a little more to the value um, of what they provide. If you're not keeping up, you sort of fall by the wayside. So it's a pretty competitive world. And you think about Facebook today, but you don't think about Friendster and MySpace and Bebo. And you think about Google, but you don't think about MySpace and, or uh, AltaVista and Excite at Home and Lycos. You know, th- these, these markets tend to get consolidated. So today we have competitors, but our competitors are, you know, Home Depot and Lowe's and Walmart and Target and Amazon and um, Bed Bath & Beyond and Macy's. But more narrow. You've, you've sort of broadened it and made it more difficult. For and it's them. national. At this point, I would say it's pretty much, you know, really national players. When people ask you, what are you really selling? What is your answer? For example, like Holly Davidson selling Freedom. Um, Raj, what are you really selling emotionally that connects to that consumer to be such a raving fan of the brand? So our goal is to help every one of our customers to, you know, we want her to have a home she loves. And that goal, there's a lot of emotion she has in that goal, but there's also, you know, there's function, there's budget, there's certainty of making the right choice. There's the aesthetic outcome she's going for. All these things are wrapped together. And so how do you do that? Well, you need to have access to selection. You need to have access to great visual merchandising. You need access to detailed content. You need someone who could provide you with good price value. You need things like good delivery and good service because it's a complicated category. It's very easy for those things to become problematic. And so we just focus on doing all of these things, enabling that customer to achieve her goals. And we try to do it with a very broad range of products, as you mentioned, which effectively allow for the customer, the customer, she can have any style that she likes. So we're not prescriptive to style. We try to cover all the bases. And then, frankly, she can also have whatever budget fits her budget. And that might be mean a budget, you know, that's maybe lean because of what she can afford. Or it might be, you know, um, a larger budget for certain rooms and for other rooms. Or perhaps you're building a space for your children to play and you know they're going to ruin the products. Right. So you don't, you don't want to invest money there. So there's all these different scenarios. And we simply want to be there to help her with her goals. We're not going to tell her what her goals are, but we want to be the best place to help. One of the things that I'm I'm picking up for the conversation, because you have access to huge data, all right, and and, and so I want to talk about demographics, if you will, but you're referring to your customer as her. So clearly that is spiking in terms of the dominant, you know, what's dominating the marketplace for you. Yeah, I mean, for home, certainly... You know, the majority of our uh, customers tend to be 35 to 65, mm-hmm. and the majority tend to be women. And they're, you know, a lot of decisions are made jointly, but predominantly the driver of the decisions, by and large, in our customer base. And I think for every customer in this kind of product category, this segment of home. Do, do, do you do what I call 
negative problem tracking, meaning like you know why people buy. But then the people who say buy once and don't come back, like it's anything else, you know, you're not really satisfied someone just comes on and buys once. You want them to be a habitual buyer Certainly. for 90%. What's the reason do you feel, Naraj, people then after one purchase, they might not buy? Have you researched that to say, to find out why are they not becoming yeah. more of a ongoing buyer? Well, there's a lot of things we focus on making better. Typically, when someone's dissatisfied, it's tied to one of these things. Um, there's folks who've never bought and they visit our website and they say, well, you must have everything, but it's too hard for me to find the item I want. So we're working on making that better. There are folks who buy and they say, oh, well, this item isn't quite what I thought it would be. So we're saying, well, how do we, with imagery, with product information, how do we make it easier for you to understand exactly what the item is, right? We have folks who buy and they say, oh, even though it said it would come in a week, you know, I was kind of hoping it would come earlier. So we have a program where we now have, you know, thousands and thousands and thousands of items for one or two day delivery. So wow. you basically keep finding problems and you keep figuring out how to, you know, make them better. Um, and you, that's a, like a never-ending cycle, right? Yeah. You can always want to keep making things better. Have you found that people shop for brands or shop for products? Uh, in our category, there are very few brands. So they're generally, in our world, they tend to think of the retailer as the brand. But they don't tend to think of the item. You know, if you think about bedroom furniture or you think of, um, you know, television stands or you think of patio furniture or you think of rugs, most people can't name brands. So what they know is where they go to buy that item, which typically is a retailer that's selling a wide variety of product. And so what we try to do is we try to make that experience, you know, as um, enjoyable as possible with the most comprehensive selection to basically help the customer find that perfect item. But they're, they're not coming in knowing what they're looking for. They're kind of, you know, they, they might know they want to redo their bedroom, you know, but they don't know that they're looking for an ABC, XYZ, you know, Duracell AA batteries. Like they're not looking for that. So the whole piece of discovering what they're looking for is a big piece of what we provide with the imagery, the navigation, the selection, helping them explore it in a way that on one hand feels comprehensive and on another hand is not too daunting. You know, it doesn't take too much time. It's not too hard. Raj, when you've gone, I mean, in 2006, you knew about $100 million and 2017, $4.7 billion. What do you feel, a couple of things, how has your unique value proposition changed or modified or altered in the last, let's say, 11 years? And also, what has, in your opinion, and you know, you know exactly, what has enabled you to have such explosive, I mean, really, explosive growth, because typical companies don't grow this rapidly. So what was that secret sauce, if you want to call it that, that enabled you to really just, just grow, like, tremendously? Well, so I think... Kind of my earlier comment, you know, these internet-affected markets, you know, they they tend to be concentrated, so they tend not to be very fragmented. So, if you can become the the winner in what is a big market that that undergoes a transformation, there's a very big opportunity at the end. Um, and that was my example: Google, Facebook. Those might be winner take all. Most markets are not winner take all, but most internet markets are winner take most. Netflix with streaming video, for example. Right. And so home retail, you know, the categories we're in is 300 billion in the U.S. and Canada, 300 billion in Europe. And so as that increasingly moves online, it's going to be really in the hands of a very small number of retailers. So that really creates the size of the prize, I think. Mm -hmm. Then the question is, are you, in fact, the best place for the customer? And my experience has been the customer always figures that out. You know, Google, Facebook, all these places add a lot of transparency to the world. And so whoever is the best place, people learn about that from their friends. They learn about that from ratings and reviews. And, and so you can't, 
you know, marketing will not allow you to change that story. Um, And so, but if you are in fact the best place, and so if you keep building stronger and stronger value for the customer, you will be able to earn more and more customers and earn more and more repeat business. And so over time, the compounding can be quite significant. So how, how are you defining, you say build more and more value, how are you defining value? So value is many things. So value might be higher quality uh, and more expansive imagery. Value might be a, a more uh, you know comprehensive selection. It might be better personalization so that when you come to the site, it more feels like it's just for you. Um, it could be faster delivery. Um, we've taken over our in-home delivery, that the, the two-man white glove in-home delivery, um, in now uh, you know over a dozen markets in the U.S. You know over over half the U.S. population. We're growing that, mm-hmm. and that's just because that's a category of type of delivery that's not done particularly well. Mm-hmm. And so we think there's a big opportunity. Customers get frustrated with that. You know they they can spend six dollars on an Uber ride across town. And see the car approaching them, and, and see a photo of the driver, and a, you know, a description of the car. But you can spend, you know, five hundred or a thousand or two thousand dollars on a large furniture item, and you know, maybe they'll show up on Tuesday. Right. So, and it doesn't really make a lot of yeah. sense. So right. it's interesting. You mentioned delivery. Speaking of delivery. I'm curious how you can make money in delivery because you deliver, you know, I think you're, you'll free deliver anything over $49. Mm-hmm. If someone is getting a sofa, a sectional sofa, yep. and they bring it in there and, oh, no, you know, I, it's harder than I thought or I don't happen to like it and they, they take it back, that's a hard model to make money in. You know, the way we think about it, so the customer wants it to be very simple, right? They want to mm-hmm. pay X dollars and know what they're getting, right? So you can say, well, this particular sofa is, uh, you know, I forget what price you just mentioned, but say say $699 okay. or whatever it mm-hmm. is. And, you know, they would like it to be simple. So if it's that price and, and maybe you have to add sales tax to that, right? So that mm-hmm. price plus tax, that's an easy thing to understand. Do I want this or not? You know, but if you get in the, oh, well, there's a charge for this. There's a charge for that. So maybe delivery is a charge. Maybe there's a surcharge for this. Or maybe, you know, would you charge them a fuel surcharge? Would you charge them, mm. you know, well, then why not charge them extra for the foam? Oh, this has better foam. This has, uh, <laughs> you know, more nail heads, right? The customer, our experience has been, tell the customer what the price needs to be, right? Mm-hmm. But keep it simple. So the price you tell them, there's not a lot of hidden things, but... They have to decide. It's not free by any right, stretch. Right, a cost. And so the way we think about it is rather than try to break it all out, and a lot of that is sort of conventional wisdom around how maybe they won't really notice, they won't think of it, and this and that. Mm-hmm. Keep it simple. I think Amazon did a great job of that on basic items, and I think a lot of folks who like to sort of line item things and we're getting away with that sort of found that more challenging. Mm-hmm. I, our experience has been you're better off just take care of the customer, keep it simple, Hmm. but, you know, tell them what things cost, right? So, you know, obviously we need to, that's part of our cost, just like buying the item and packaging the item. These are all parts of our cost. Are you finding that, as Roger mentioned, the larger ticket items have more of a propensity to be returned? No, um, I think one nice thing about our category it is a category that people are very thoughtful about. So they put a lot of thought goes into, you know, how they want their space to look and feel, what they want to buy. So without even us pushing them to necessarily consider it a lot, they are very thoughtful about something before they order it. So the reality is our return rate is around 5% stays fairly low because customers are fairly thoughtful before mm-hmm. they first buy it. They don't, they don't want to have it 
be something they have to return either. And the reality is if they end up wanting to return it, we have a return policy. We want to take care of them. But the reality is that's not a situation we want, but that's not a situation they want either. So it tends to work out. It's not like they're taking advantage of us by returning it or something like that. It's really not. It's not ideal mm-hmm. for either of us. But we want to make it a good experience for them because mistakes do happen. They're not doing like, for example, like a month ago, LL Bean changed their return policy because people were abusing the system. Yeah. So, I mean, your folks, your customers, you're right. They care about you and they feel like your brand is their brand and therefore they want to enjoy the whole experience and they're not into trying to connive or whatever else, right? Well, I think so. I also think it's tricky to worry. There'll always be a small percentage who want to take advantage of something. Mm-hmm. I think from a policy-making standpoint, it's a little dangerous to create policies focused on the few percent and hurt the vast majority who are yeah. loyal customers. Yes, so I, would agree. I think, you know, you need to... Um, you need to pick a spot where you can stand behind. Like, Roger, I believe at your restaurants, you, mm-hmm. you stand behind the quality of the food. Now, there'll be some percentage who maybe want to take advantage of that. Mm-hmm. And there might be times where you have to tell someone we, perhaps. We, we actually, the funny you know, thing is we do track it online because we have a, an online uh, delivery. And, so, you know, we, even, you know, we're, we're primitive enough, but we can still figure out who the abusers are yeah. on, a, on a constant basis. And what do you do in those scenarios? We, we, we tell goodbye. them that we can't, uh, we can't deal <laughs> right, with just, them. Just to them. Just to them. And for exactly. everyone else, you keep your great service yes. warranty yes. return. Uh, yes. Meaning we'll if something happens. We'll allow ourselves to get burnt at least twice, you know. <laughs> And that's uh, it. I don't. I don't know if I want to say that, but yes. Yeah. <laughs> well, I think an approach like that yeah. gets you really far, though, because the vast majority of people could be great customers, and something can go wrong. Right, of course. And in that situation, you want to take care of them. Mm-hmm. And so that—that's—that's that's my view. So that was the only thing that I found surprising about the L. Bean thing. It's not. There's going to be that small percentage. There's got to be a way they need to be able to, to, to say, "Hey, we're not going to." allow that kind right, of abuse. Right. But at the same time, all the loyal customers, exactly. you want them to feel like you're going to stand there right, behind you the quality of the product. Mm-hmm. Right, you want them to suffer from it. Right, right. Because they're not doing anything wrong and they're, you know, they're getting really the, the bad uh, hit from the people who are doing bad things. Right. Yeah. So our view is you got you to break that apart. You can't roll it together. You are growing at an explosive rate. I, I think you just had mentioned 75, 100 people and maybe adding another 2,000 very soon. Tell us a little bit about your workforce in terms of the demographics of the workforce, what you look for, because I think your culture is much more millennial-centric than than many of our companies that are out there today. Yeah, so, I mean, our company, you know, we're growing quite quickly, so we're growing the, the, the number of people in the company quite quickly, and... Um, I think our average age, because our company is fairly young, um, just as a company, is probably mm-hmm. fairly young as well. Um, and I think that's that's been great um, in that there's a you know the company you walk through our offices there's a lot of energy. I mean, folks are of all different ages and all different backgrounds, but we have no private offices, so it's it's big open layout, and so a lot of the energy you can just feel it and you see mm-hmm. people talking to each other. Um, we have just everyone has a desk at the whole the whole layout is like a trading floor. It's just very open. So there's a lot of knowledge sharing. Um, we have an analytics platform that everyone has access to. So there's no data that certain folks get that other folks can't get. So the biggest thing I would say is less that um, the age is different. It's more the culture of how we approach it. Mm-hmm. I'm being very quantitative, being very ambitious, being very open. And I think we attract folks who like that and, and we give them an environment where we're really encourage them to flourish you know they kind of world is the is is their oyster um and i like that Go that ahead. gets us a lot of outcomes <laughs> yeah, good outcomes yeah a, a zillion options i heard people yeah. are, are bantering that around the uh, your offices what is a zillion options so mean? for the longest time we had a tagline on our site 
uh, a zillion things home. And it was sort of the way to describe, well, what is Wayfair? And the initial, when we initially launched the brand, we said, you know, the tagline was a zillion things home. And it was a kind of a fun way of basically trying to point to the selection, but also point to the fact that we're a home specialist, which is somewhat unique. Most folks who want to sell home goods, well, they sell home goods, but they mainly sell groceries and consumables, or they sell home goods, but they also sell. Mm. And home is a fairly unique category. So if you think about the consumer and you ask her what she's thinking about when she thinks about home items, she'll have one point of view. But then you look at a retailer, they're sort of, right. those are a few aisles off to the side. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We said, no, no, that's all we are. We're just home. So everything about our site, everything about what we care about, everything about delivery, everything is about home. I have a billion dollar question to ask, okay? You are without a the, the largest online retailer for home furniture. Now, what I've heard through the grapevine, you are considering creating a catalog? We have a catalog. A catalog. Why is the largest online e-commerce home furniture online business creating a catalog? Well, so in our early days, we did all our marketing online. And today, I mean, online marketing is still, you know, 80% plus of what we spend. But what we found over time is that for our customers, touching them in multiple ways made sense. So one of the things we added um, was television. So we started doing a lot on integrated programming, first with HGTV and scripts, and then uh, uh, other places over time, which is really content that fit us very well, where, where a lot of what they're helping folks understand is a way in which they can achieve their vision. Well, certainly Wayfair is another piece of achieving your vision for your home. Um, and then uh, that led us to, to think about, well, in print, print is a very different uh, immersive way. Is print um, larger format catalogs, smaller trifolds, postcards. We do a variety of different types of things. Does that make sense? And we found there's very nuanced sort of use cases. The benefit of using data for everything is, you know, we can track everything. And what we did is we started developing a whole series of different catalogs and series of different types of mailings. And we would use those where it made sense, but we wouldn't necessarily blanket sort of everywhere with them. Yeah. And you're finding it's cost effective versus another added expense versus you know, the business you were getting with the yeah with no. The Definitely valuable. So we, yeah. we measure everything on, you know, with the incremental benefit. That's right. the beauty of all the data we track. Right. Um, and no, it has been very positive. Yeah. Awesome. Running a very visible public company, I'm sure, has its challenges. And you guys are certainly a juggernaut in terms of what's happening out there. Uh, your uh, your stock price continues to uh, rise. Your market cap is, is outstanding. And you always have critics on the side saying, well, it's not sustainable. And, and to me, it's sort of reminiscent of the early days of, uh, uh, of Google or Amazon, where they got the same kind of criticism. How, how do you respond to that? Well, so I think certainly it's easier for someone to understand someone who's a more mature company, who's, you know, growing slowly and more or less stable than just understand a growth story and a growing company and understand, well, which of the growing companies are sustainable and which aren't. I think at this point, I think a lot of the folks who were maybe initially skeptical about us have come around partially because they've seen how the repeat customer growth has played out in the business and customers only come back if they're happy. You, know, you can market to them to get them to mm-hmm. check you out the mm-hmm. first time, but they don't come back mm-hmm. off marketing. They come back because they're happy. Um, there's other things people have realized, too, like the Wayfair brand awareness has become very strong, and, and that's really because there was a big void in the market. Um, and so 
you know, our view is there'll always be naysayers out there. And I think there's also a large industry of folks who maybe, you know, effectively make money off volatility in stocks and growth stocks will have volatility. But instead of worrying about those folks, what we worry about is just, you know, how do we focus on the best customer outcomes? Those customer outcomes let us earn more customers and more repeat business. Those drive the financial results. The financial results, you know, the United States... When we went public in 2014, we weren't making money. And then the United States is, you know, on the adjusted EBITDA, it's been profitable for a whole series of quarters. And that's despite the growth. And that's simply because of our model, which is where the repeat business is very profitable. So we're very aggressive at reinvesting money back into making the experience better and better. But my point was just that, you know, you can see it. We, we now have been public for over three years. So there's, you know, a whole series of quarters. And so I think the results have been such that a lot of folks have, over time, understood us better. Now, I, I'm, I'm sure I'm not the, the first to speculate on this, but I you have to sort of imagine that Amazon has taken notice in terms of what you're doing. You know, do you, do they? Uh, if you know, I guess, how am I going to phrase this? Do they see you as a, a potential acquisition at some point? And and when you hear that, how do you respond? Yeah, I mean, it's hard to know what other companies are thinking about, but it does feel like a lot of folks, I mentioned home is an aside for a lot of folks. So when you look at folks like Walmart or Amazon, you hear a lot of talk about grocery, which is really a very core category. And when you think about this type of consumables retail, you know, and then there's folks like Home Depot and Lowe's and you hear a lot of talk about the builder and home building. And Mm -hmm. so I think when you think about folks' core business, I think this is why our opportunity is so large. When you think about home... You think about the the person whose house it is and the the homeowners and what are they trying to achieve and how can we help, you know, the the consumer, how can we help her achieve what she wants? That creates a lot of opportunity for us. And and that's what's different is that we're not focused on selling groceries and, oh, by the way, we also have home or we're not focused on the builder and, oh, also we have decorative accents. You know, we're – the only category we're focused on is really the core of home and we don't have electronics, we don't have clothing, we don't have grocery, but we're fine with that because we think it lets us do a better job in home. Are there categories you're thinking of right now of expanding beyond the current categories you're offering the consumer? No. You know, in fact, when we launched the Wayfair brand in 2011, we actually, when we had built the 250 different websites, we had started, to, we had some categories that didn't really fit in to home that well. And so, so one Such of the, as? For example, we sold like kayaks and canoes oh. on one site. And we, so we had a few kind of sites that were just, you know, they, they just didn't fit into what we wanted to focus on. So what we did over time is we actually narrowed the categories and we said, you know, we only want to be in categories where we think we can become the best. And so what we've been doing over the years, if you look at our navigation tree on our website, we've been basically figuring out, well, how do we put a team on every category? Because we had some categories where we had big teams and we were the leader in them. And we had other categories that we just were not yet there. We said, well, let's put a team over time on each category. We want to become the winner in every category or we shouldn't really be in it. Mm -hmm. Because in the long run, it's very hard to understand why would the customer buy from us if we're not the winner? And the leader, if we're not providing the best experience. So that's been our process. So we're we're actually not terribly interested in adding things to it. What we're more focused on is how do we become the the absolute clear best at each one. So what are you doing then to expand? Let's say you have a finite number of categories. What are you doing now to expand the market versus expand the brand? So we do a few things. So um, 
for example, mattresses is a category we've been in for a long time. But in the last year or so, <laughs> can I just say, why is everyone into mattresses? mattresses everybody. I mean, every furniture <laughs> store that we see is selling <laughs> mattresses. Really? The What's profit the margin. Uh, you know, really? That's why. Yeah, the main reason folks focus on mattresses point, is the margin is higher. Yeah, I think for furniture stores, it's it's higher margin than the core furniture. Okay. Um, but uh, you know. Matt, there's also ca- mattress is a category we focus on, but also bedding, for example, is a category we focused on. Decorative accents and seasonal decor are other categories we focused on. So there's a whole series of categories that up until a couple of years ago, we didn't really have a dedicated focus team on them. And now we do. And so all of a sudden, over once you do, you start seeing the selections getting better. The merchandising gets better. The speed of delivery. And you're basically able to drive a better and better experience, which lets you offer the customer you know, more value. And by value, again, I'm talking about all of these things, not, right, not necessarily right. price or what have you. And the customers react because customers are very savvy. And they say, oh, wow. you know." So how much patience do you give it when you launch a new category? What kind of timeline do you feel you know it's going to make it or we're going to just eliminate it from the uh, offering? It's not quite that simple. Some things take a long time. Yeah. So what, that's the benefit of collecting a lot of data. It's not all or nothing. So we can actually keep measuring how customers are reacting to it. Is it getting stronger? Is the conversion rate getting better? Is the quality of selection getting better? Is our you know, is the customer behavior, customer spending more time on site in that category or not? So we'll use a lot of different data. Um, and so we're not necessarily sort of, oh, you got to prove X in Y time or right, we're out. It's right, not quite so. Right, clean. right. I, w- I want to shift gears for a moment, Naraj. I know you and your family are very uh, civic minded and you and your wife run a family foundation that, that she, uh, your wife Jill operates. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. So, um, you know, we, uh, well, we live in Boston and we, we feel like we've been very lucky and very, we're very fortunate. And, and both of us are very uh, philanthropically minded. So the, the Family Foundation we started has a particular area it's particularly focused on. Um, uh, and a lot of it has to do with uh, education and uh, health care, mainly for disadvantaged portions of the community. And so there's a bunch of programs that our foundation has been driving. I really need to give all the credit to my wife because uh, it's, it's not really myself, but it's, it's my wife and the team there. And, um, you know, one program, for example, that's gotten some publicity is around school food in the Boston public school system and the opportunity to create some fresh food. And there's a few schools in East Boston that are piloting this program with great results so far. And the idea is just how can we be helpful? That's all our goal is. We have something uh, here called the lightning round. We're going to fire some questions at you and okay. just sort of one by one. What do you think of the decor in this room? I think it's fantastic. <laughs> Someone must have tipped you off. It is all ordered from Wayfair. I want you to know. Okay, so you, That's you have good taste. Go ahead, Larry. Raj, when you're not running this business, what are you doing outside? And we know that people don't see today, but you have a cast in your hand, so you're an injury skiing. But what are, your, what are your other passions when you're away from Wayfair? You know, so I enjoy what I do at work, so I spend a fair amount of time on that. And then my wife and I, we have two children, so I spend a fair amount of time with the family. Those would be the two main primary sort of buckets of time. Yeah, super. Last item you bought online from Wayfair. Um, I bought a, uh, uh, for our bed, I bought a, a topper for the bed. Okay. I can't refer to, to the consumer's her then, right? No, no. Well, we buy everything from Wayfair. So, but, but, but the vast majority of the items in our house, uh, well, all the items, home items are bought from Wayfair. And I'd say the vast, vast majority were selected by my wife, okay. which is thankful right. because she has better taste than me. Okay. <laughs> to piggyback on that, 
have you, your wife, ever returned anything you bought from Wayfair? You know, I'm sure we have. I can't. I can't think of any <laughs> particular off the top of my head, but I'm sure we have. Yeah. yeah. Um, most expensive item you sell, and, and least expensive item you sell. In, in generally, I mean, I can't yeah. go I mean, there are um, there's emails that come out every month, which basically show the most expensive and the least expensive and the heaviest item in the month before. Um, what I would say that that you know we have a lot of low cost items, and it might be whether it be a rug pad or some glasses that you know, drinking glasses or what have you. Um, the most expensive items tend to be like an assembled gazebo or a large shed or um, uh, there's some uh, some high end um, lighting lines, very large chandeliers. Or so there's there's some items. There, there there are ways, Roger. So I would encourage you. I think you're our target demographic here. <laughs> items that are tens of thousands of dollars. Uh, you know what? We, we we did we did buy a bedroom set uh, from from Wayfair, and it's very very nice. It's held up. Is, it, it looks is that very why you? Good. Thank you for doing yeah. that. No, no. Is that no. why you have a sciatica? <laughs> no. <laughs> no, absolutely not. Uh, good. Now, um, who in your life do you feel has been quite an inspiration to you, whether it be a mentor? What one or two people have really been quite influential in you in the path you've taken in your business world? Yeah, you know, I, I would say most of uh, most of my influences, I would say, really are in, in my family. It's really been yeah. uh, tremendous. And so my my, my parents, uh, my wife is a big source of inspiration. And then, you know, Steve Conine, who I've now been a, in business with for over 20 years, has really been a fantastic journey. Uh, fiction or nonfiction? It, um, uh, it can be either, depending. Well, that's a hell of an answer. Okay. <laughs> you know, I, I, will, I, will, I will read, you know, certain biographies uh, that I find fascinating. Uh-huh. But then, to be honest, a lot of times, uh, you know, I don't get as much time to read as I would like. So I, I might read like a spy novel just as a way mm-hmm. of relaxing. I, and I, it's not necessarily I, yeah. for educational content, but it's very enjoyable. All right. Let me give you one other one. Uh, wine, California or France? Probably go California. Okay. All right. Okay. <laughs> I, can, I can live with that. Looking back, what advice do you wish you had received when you first embarked on your first venture? Well, so I would say the probably the hardest thing you learn as a young manager. So this is less about being an entrepreneur. Entrepreneur, I think, is a lot about perseverance and customer orientation, certain things that I, I would say we had the benefit of some of those things being somewhat instinctual to us, and we always kind of approached it that way. The hardest thing, though, as a as a business leader and a manager, I found is, you know, you're always excited when you get a chance to hire someone, but it's always hard when you realize someone who's working for you is not performing well. And you basically, human nature is such that you shy away from having that conversation. And I feel like I had to learn the hard way many times to realize that every time you put it off, you're doing a disservice to yourself, disservice to everyone else who works at the company, and a disservice to that person. And that's a very hard lesson, and you know, I've tried to get better at it over time and impart that to others, but that's a, I, I believe that's probably the hardest lesson to learn in business. Larry, you are aware we're on the lightning round, right? Yes. Okay, all right. I just want to make sure we didn't have a problem with comprehension. Um, <laughs> favorite website, not your own? Favorite website, not my own? That's a great question. I would say Google. Okay, all right. Very good. See, that's how it works, Larry. One word answers oh, to oh, a thanks, question. Roger. I remember the okay. Bill Clinton question, Roger. Okay. <laughs> what one trend do you see in the horizon that could severely impact your business? Well, one that we think actually will have a very significant uh, positive impact for our business is what's coming with augmented reality. 
So the augmented reality technology coupled with the, what's happening with today's cell phones, with the, the iPhones and the Android phones, I think it's going to get in the next, call it two years, to where you can better see what an item will look like in your home by shopping from wow. your home wow. than you can by going to a store. Because through the camera, you're going to see a very, you, obviously you see your room. And you'll be able to see that item in your room in a way that you will not be able to know whether it was there or not there. Mm. And then you will know, do I like this or not? Right. So imagine a chandelier or a sofa or whatever, and you will decide if you like it or not. Right. And and we think that's going to be a big deal. When, when is There's early versions already available on the phone, but the quality of the rendering, so on and so forth, is not great yet, but it shows you what's possible. And you give that, you know, a year to two years, it's going up this huge curve. I mean. It's, it's there. Naraj Shah, founder, co-founder, and CEO of Wayfair. Thank you very much. Very enlightening conversation. And again, we're in awe of what you're doing and uh, wish you best Amazing. of luck. Thank yeah. you for joining us. Remember, remember to subscribe to Name Brands on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app and get in touch with us. We'd love to hear from you. We're at Name Brands Pod on Twitter or on Facebook at Name Brands Podcast. That's it for us. We'll be back to talk to you again next Wednesday. 